0: I want to begin this evening by addressing the question, why is it that we practice? Why put yourself through this? You might be asking yourself that question. I have been all day. Generally, people come with a variety of motivations. There's not just one. Sometimes people come to practice motivated by the desire just to cool out a little bit, almost as a kind of stress reduction, you know, which is valid. And often we lead very stressful lives. And our lives are busy and hectic. And just to find a way to cool out, to calm down, to lower one's blood pressure. You know, and meditation does that. It can actually help in that regard. Sometimes people come motivated by wanting to understand perhaps some of the difficulties that they're facing in their lives. At different times, we come up against real suffering, real times of difficulty, and we don't sometimes or often see how to be free in those situations. And the wisdom of the practice, the wisdom of insight, really allows us to understand and to extricate ourselves from a lot of the suffering that we find ourselves in. That's another motivation for people. Sometimes people come to practice with really a very deep spiritual yearning. It's not simply about cooling out and it's not about simply making our lives more comfortable and more harmonious. It's really about awakening, you know, and can call it many different things, the urge or the impulse to enlightenment, to awakening, to freedom, to the truth, to a radical transformation of understanding who we are. So it can be many or different of these motivations What has been of tremendous importance for me personally, and it really has transformed the way I understand the practice of meditation, is the understanding that all of these individual motivations, each one of them, can be held or understood in yet a larger context. And that larger context is the understanding that we are not practicing for ourselves alone, that we are practicing for the welfare and the benefit and the happiness and the awakening of all beings. When we understand this, when we connect with it, it really changes the way we undertake our practice. We're not doing this for ourselves alone. We're doing it for all beings, which includes ourselves. You don't want to leave yourself out of it, but it's not limited. Well, we can hear this and it sounds good. You know, well, I'm watching my breath for the benefit of all beings. But what does that mean? <laughs> you know, how can we make some sense of that? What does it mean to be practicing for the welfare of all? We can understand it in different ways. And it's really quite simple. The more we understand our own minds, the more we understand the minds of everyone else. And this is really quite amazing. We are usually so caught up in our individual stories and dramas and individual personalities and it really creates a wall of separation. We imprison ourselves in that, in this feeling of separation and so much difference from others. One of the amazing things about sitting still and paying attention is we begin to understand the basic commonality of all our experience. When we understand the nature of thought, the nature of anger, the nature of sadness, the nature of happiness. It's the same. It's the same in me. It's the same in you. It's the same in people in China. The nature of the mind is the same. The story is different. We all have different backgrounds and different histories, but how it's all working is just the same. This timelessness of the truth is the great power of the Dharma. The truth is not limited or specific to a certain time or place. It's timeless and it's universal. So when we understand ourselves deeply, we understand everybody. We begin to really feel, not just intellectualize, but feel the commonality of suffering. We see it in ourselves and we see that it's the same in others. We feel the commonality of awareness, the nature of awareness, the commonality of freedom. What this does, as this opens up in our understanding, is that it gives rise to much greater compassion. Why don't we feel compassion in the face of so much suffering in the world? Or why is it limited? Because we tend to think of other people in some way as being different. The meditation reveals that it is not like that. It's the same processes at work. As we see the suffering in ourselves, we feel more connected to others. We feel more compassion. So we're practicing. We practice opening. We practice becoming more aware in order to open to greater compassion. We practice for the benefit of all beings. A second way this practice works to benefit all And again, it's really very obvious, but we often overlook it. How we are of necessity affects everyone we meet and ripples out in ways we can't even imagine. If we're more peaceful and loving, less judgmental, less angry, less fearful, less selfish, there's that much more peace and love in the world. There's that much less judgment and anger and selfishness. It seems so clear. Sometimes I have the image of being on a small boat in the middle of a storm and everybody's anxious and fearful and upset and running around not knowing what to do. One wise, calm person on that boat can bring everyone to safety. We are actually on a somewhat small boat, this planet Earth. And the more wise, calm people there are, we can actually bring everyone to safety. So we are not practicing just for ourselves. What we do will, of necessity, affect all other beings. This understanding of the natural interconnectedness of everything When it becomes the motivation for our practice, not just in understanding that it's a byproduct, but when we actually make this the motivation, yes, I am practicing in order to help others, in order to benefit others. And we could start each sitting with that kind of thought, that aspiration. May this sitting be for the benefit, for the happiness, for the welfare of all it changes the quality of that sitting, of that walking, of that activity. It's as if we're dedicating our efforts to something larger than ourselves. There's one teaching from the Buddha where he says that everything rests on the tip of motivation. It's the motivation that we have that really determines how things unfold. This motivation, it's in the in Pali or Sanskrit, it's called Bodhicitta, heart of awakening, heart of wisdom, heart of enlightenment. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. So we practice that. We actually make it part of our practice. And as we do this, we see that it becomes this practice of bodhicitta, practicing for the benefit of all, becomes a transfusion of love and compassion in our lives. Before I go on, I, I just want to remind you something I'm sure you know. We may hear these words and even perhaps appreciate them and agree with them. It takes practice. This motivation of bodhicitta is not something that you know, we have full-blown. We may think, yes, to benefit all is a good idea. But we actually need to consciously cultivate it to remind ourselves so that it really becomes the motive, the motivating force in our lives then a very beautiful transformation of how we live begins to take place. So the question which follows, how can we affect this transformation in ourselves? How can we become more loving and more peaceful, less judgmental, less angry, less self-centered? This is the task before us. Now this is called the Insight Meditation Society. And you may have been wondering, well, where is the Insight? <laughs> <laughs> now, I know it's around here someplace. As I mentioned in one of the groups today, you've already had the first Insight. You may just not have noticed it. And that is, the awareness of how difficult it is to keep the mind steady on something like the breath. It's difficult to concentrate. The Buddha gave many examples of how slippery the untrained mind is. Now We give it something very simple to do, in, out, rising, falling, lifting, moving, placing. (laughs) It's simple, but it is not easy. You now we're with the breath for one or two or three breaths, pshh, that's off and gone. The first insight is realizing this, is seeing that this is the nature of our minds. Most people don't know this. If you go into Barry and ask somebody, you know, do you know what's going on? Are you aware? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Because until we stop and look, we really have no idea what's going on in our minds. (laughs) And it's just interesting, right from the very beginning, to see how this is working. We're with a breath or two, and then the mind just goes off. It hops on a train of association. We don't know actually when we hop on, and we have no idea where the train is going. (laughs) I mean, none whatsoever. You know, and we end up often lost in some drama, some trauma, some big emotional crisis, some contraction of self of I. All because we've been on this train. We've hopped on this train of thought and emotional association, unaware. We didn't know. And you've noticed, I'm sure, today, all of you, how frequently this happens. This is not a unique experience. Just our minds are continually judging and planning and remembering and commenting. And and what's quite amazing to notice is that these wanderings, they don't even have to be pleasant. How often do we relive old arguments or hurts or things that are really unpleasant and we keep going over and over and over? Who's in charge here? Okay, there's a great lesson in this insight of how slippery the mind is and how easily it gets distracted. And that is that it's not difficult to be mindful. Can you hear the sound? There's no problem, is there? The awareness was natural. Sound arose and we were aware of it. No effort, no struggle. It's not difficult to be mindful. It's difficult to remember to be mindful. In the moment of being present, of being undistracted, the awareness is spontaneous. There's nothing we have to do to be aware. The problem is that from this basic ground of awareness, things arise and we get pulled out. We get distracted. What's difficult is to remember again. Oh yeah, come back. Simply be present. So this first insight into the nature of our minds is how easily we can become distracted. And this leads us to a very important understanding. And it's something that's worth a little reflection because it can inspire your practice at home. Given this nature of the mind, the slippery nature the nature of the mind that gets lost so easily. When we see this for ourselves, not just somebody telling us, we can understand how critically important it is for ourselves and for the world to stabilize, to steady the awareness. Otherwise, we and everybody else are simply acting out, playing out, all of these conditioned thoughts and feelings. It's often disaster. Just think of all the worlds that have been created while you're sitting here. It's the same thing in principle that is happening in Bosnia, in Somalia, in a million places around the world. What's happening? What's happening is the manifestation of people's minds. It's the manifestation of fear, the manifestation of hatred, the manifestation of greed. These things are not dropping down from heaven or from some, you know, extraterrestrial. Actions come out of the mind, out of forces in the mind. If we are not aware, if we're not paying attention, we are in the same situation. We're just acting out patterns. It's very interesting as you're on retreat, in the solitude of a retreat, just to sit and watch all the worlds that the mind creates in the course of a sitting, in the course of a day. There's a lot. What's going on? A lot that's being created. We need to be aware. We need to wake up so that we can exercise some discriminating wisdom. Yes, this is worth doing. This I can let go of. This is destructive. This is not helpful. If we're not aware, there's no choice. If we're not aware, we're just acting it all out. This is the connection between awareness and mindfulness and freedom. Oliver Wendell Holmes had a nice little pippy statement about this. What lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. It's so true, because what lies behind us and what lies before us have come and will come from what lies within us. So we have to see, we have to really open and pay attention. We need to wake up to what's inside. So how to do this? It's not an easy task. The first thing that we need to do is to learn at least in a preliminary way, how to calm the mind down a little bit and collect the attention so it's not so scattered, not so dispersed. And this is really what a retreat is about. You know, we undertake really a discipline of simplicity. You'll go home tomorrow and your friends will ask you, Well, what did you do? <laughs> I sat, I walked, I sat, I walked, I sat, I walked. It's really very simple. And it's that simplicity which allows things to calm down. Slowly, kind of the steadiness of awareness begins to increase. Instead of the flood of thoughts and the torrent of thoughts, where we barely can get one the awareness of one breath in, it's like the thoughts are still there, but they're a little softer. They're a little more in the background. There's a little more spaciousness. We can see them to some degree when they arise. As this begins to happen, there's a real sense of inner relief, It's like we're not being battered by this constant barrage of unnoticed thoughts and feelings and images. We create some inner space. A few tools in the practice which we use to help create this calm. Basic I'm not, I'm not talking about some fantastic trance state. Just a little bit of calm and attentiveness. One of the tools that we use, which is very helpful, is giving the mind a primary object, which is what we do with the breath or the walking. It's an anchor. So that when you're feeling confused, when you're feeling scattered, when you don't know what to do, very simple. Come back to the breath. Come back to a movement. It eliminates doubt. It eliminates confusion. In the simplicity of this, you can understand something very profound, and that is the spontaneous nature of awareness. We'll do a little experiment now just to remind you actually of how effortless awareness can be. Just if you would, move your arm, just slowly. Dance with it a little bit. Let your arm dance. Not particularly looking at it, but feeling it. Just feeling the movement. And you might go faster, you might go slower, maybe microscopically slow. Does anybody have any problem knowing they're moving their arm? it's not difficult. The nature of the mind is awareness. The nature of the mind is to know. You move your arm and you know it. You move your arm and you feel it. You're aware of it. There's no problem. Everything is like that. You can be with the breath in the same way. Be with the breath and simply feel it. Be with the movement and simply feel it. One problem arises because sometimes the language that we use in talking about meditation is the wrong language. We use a lot of observing language, observe, notice, watch, note, and it's really all wrong. Because it, it creates a separation. It's as if someone is on the outside trying to keep track of what is happening. You know, and so that's why there's always that struggle. Well, I have to hold on to it in order to be aware. See if you can leave aside that language of watching and retranslate everything in terms of feeling. Feel the movement, feel the breath, feel the sensation. That's from the inside. That's happening spontaneously. That's happening without struggle. If you make that switch, I think you'll find the practice much more graceful, much easier. So this is the first tool of practice, the primary object, learning to feel it rather than watch it. The second tool of practice is again something very simple, which has tremendous consequences and that is using the time on retreat to slow down a little bit now most of us lead very busy lives and we're just kind of rushing through our lives here there's nothing to do except be attentive, to be aware you can slow down a lot slowing down doesn't mean holding yourself back It's not like reining in a horse. (laughs) It's much more the sense of just settling back and letting the movements that we make through the day come out of that feeling of being settled back. Sort of like doing Tai Chi. You know, some conscious movement. The great gift of a retreat is that we can take time to pay attention. There's nobody rushing you to do anything. Georgia O'Keeffe, a you know, great artist, she said something very telling to this point. She said, still in a way nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small. We haven't time and to see takes time, like to have a friend takes time. I mean, it's such good advice for people in our culture. You know, to see takes time, like to have a friend takes time. Whether it's to see a flower, to really see it. To see ourselves. Slowing down opens the possibility of being aware of great subtlety of experience and great vividness. You may have had this experience today or perhaps tomorrow or in a longer retreat, but what typically happens as we slow down and as we're paying attention, just the simplest things can become magically alive. You you just see the silhouette of a tree against the sky or a flower or a stone or the simplest everyday things which normally we just pass right by, all of a sudden it's like they're alive, they're breathing there. There's a certain magic which is present when we are really present. Use the time of the retreat. This is a great gift you have given yourself. Use it. Use it to slow down. Again, not, it's not a forced. It's not holding yourself back. It's enjoying it, enjoying the beauty of it. Okay, So we use a primary object. We slow down. We use the mental noting as a tool. and It's really a check. You don't want to make a burden of the mental noting. It's only a tool to help us in awareness, but it can be a very useful check. There's a meditative disease, which is called more or less mindfulness. <laughs> you know, we're, we're more or less mindful. We kind of know what's going on, but not really. The noting is a very good check. It's, a, it's an antidote to this disease because it tells us whether we're really exactly present, precisely aware, or we're kind of aware. Pay attention to the tone of the note, because that will reveal the quality of your mind. In, out, in, out. (laughs) That's saying something. We need to soften a little bit. So all of these are signals. All of this is feedback for us, to reveal to us how our minds are working. So we use these tools, the sitting and walking, the simplicity of the form, the primary object, the slowing down, the mental noting, in order to have the mind become a little calm, steady, collected. What happens then, in this greater awareness, is that we become more attuned to what is happening in our bodies. All of a sudden, our bodies start revealing themselves. In the beginning, it's not always pleasant because the sensations which seem to rush forward, pain, tension, aches, discomfort, these are the ones that seem to come up first. And at this point in the practice, sometimes people get discouraged you know, or impatient because it's difficult. It's difficult to sit with discomfort. Sometimes people have the feeling they just want to give it up. It's not worth doing. It's important to understand because what it means, and you may find this hard to believe, but it's true, that the awareness of all this kind of discomfort in the body is actually a sign of progress. It's a sign of deepening practice. Because what it means is that we are no longer distracting ourselves. Now you could go to the movies and sit quite comfortably for two hours, two and a half hours, no problem. (laughs) You know, you, you go and you come out and you feel fine. Try sitting here for two and a half hours. Why? Because in the movies you're distracted. The mind is the mind is pulled out. Here there's very little distraction. Except what the mind can manufacture. And so we begin to see, we begin to feel what is actually always present, but usually we don't notice. This takes a certain amount of courage. It takes courage to look at that side of life which is unpleasant. You know, it's not our usual way. Usually we tend to avoid what's unpleasant. But it's extremely important to do. We would all like our lives to be only pleasant. That would be great. You know, for the body never to get sick. For our meditation to always be blissful. The Blissful Meditation Society (laughs) in Barry, Massachusetts. (laughs) But this is a dream. This is not how life actually is. It's not always pleasant. And the body does get sick. And we do face everything in the meditation practice. So it's essential that we begin to explore the nature of this discomfort, the nature of pain, the nature of suffering. What is it about? And what's our relationship to it? We can learn a lot from a sitting, watching a pain in the knee. Because it shows us so much about our conditioning with respect to pain, with respect to what's unpleasant. And what we find, typically, is that our habitual pattern is to, in one way or another, close off, push away, not open to and we've developed a lot of strategies for doing this. One of the strategies that the mind develops with respect to pain is self-pity. You know, sort of, I see it in my mind the complaining mind, the poor me mind. You know, we're sitting and our back hurts and our knees hurt, and and the mind starts thinking, oh, everybody else is sitting so still and is so blissful. And poor me, I'm the only one who's sitting here suffering. And it just gets lost, gets lost in that track. And in all that time of being lost, we are not actually open to exploring the nature of the discomfort. We're contracting, we're pulling back. Another strategy or conditioning that is very common with respect to pain is fear there's often fear of experiencing pain. Now, something very interesting about this fear, because it's often not about the pain that's actually there, but it's about the pain that we anticipate happening in the rest of the hour. So the sensation that we're actually feeling in the moment may be okay. Not pleasant, but we can deal with it. But then the mind starts extrapolating, oh, this is going to go on for the whole hour. I'll never be able to bear it. And so we're trying to experience all of the pain of the hour in just that one moment. So, of course, it's too much. But that's all mind created. That's a a concept which is feeding the fear. Another strategy for avoiding pain, and this is, this is a good yogi trick, it's the bargaining mind. We, we trick ourselves into thinking that we're really being mindful. Okay, I'll watch you. I'll feel you, if you'll go away. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I call the in order to mind. You know, I'll watch you, I'll be with you, in order for something to happen, that also is not acceptance. That's not that willingness, okay, let me just be with this, let me see it, let me feel it, let me understand it. One time I was, when I was uh, sitting in Burma, conditions there are quite difficult. In addition to the heat, which is like this. The monastery is sort of on the outskirts of the city and it's surrounded by villages. And there's a huge amount of noise. They were doing construction in the monastery, so they were banging all day. The villages around, they like to play loud music over loudspeakers. So This was going on all day and all night. I thought I was in an insane <laughs> asylum. I really did. <laughs> what is going on here? It was really unpleasant. (laughs) And my mind started going through all of these trips. You know, (laughs) here I am. I came to get enlightened and all these people are bothering me. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to Upandita, a Burmese teacher, and I was reporting my experience. And he just said, you know, well, did you note it? Did you note the hearing? And I kind of grumbled a little bit, (laughs) because it just sounded to me like he was trying to make the best of a bad situation, that he really knew how bad it was. And he said, well, just note it. (laughs) But then I went back, and as often happened with his advice, even though I didn't particularly take it in in the moment, when I was back in my room and practicing, I thought, well, maybe I'll just try what he said and try noting it. And there was an amazing shift of understanding that took place. The noting of that sound, of just hearing, 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 was not for the purpose of just somehow making it tolerable. It revealed in that moment, because the the situation was so intense, that from the perspective of awareness, it does not matter what the object is. That sound was fine, absolutely fine. There was no problem at all. It was just sound. When I was in a relationship, a mindful relationship, when I wasn't complaining to myself, feeling self-pity, when I wasn't extrapolating the fear, oh, this is going to go on for the next two months, when I wasn't bargaining with it, but could just be with it, hearing, hearing, hearing. There's no problem. It can show us the nature of awareness itself. You know, one of the images that's sometimes used is, if you think of the mind, and remember that this is just an image, but it it might be helpful. The mind is a mirror. With a mirror, and things come in front of it, does the mirror discriminate in any way whatsoever? No. The nature of the mirror is simply to reflect what comes in front of it. It's beautiful, it's ugly, it's this, it's that. It makes no difference. The mirror has a single nature, to reflect. The nature of the mind is to know. That's all. The nature of the mind is to be aware. Whatever it is that arises, whatever appears, from the perspective of awareness is equal. Well, that's tremendously freeing. See if, as you go through you know, this evening and tomorrow in your practice, see if you can remember this. As difficult things come up, difficult sensations in the body, let it be an appearance in the open mirror, the open sky of the mind. It's only our likes and dislikes. I want this. I don't want that. That's where we get into trouble. It's our own aversion, or the aversion in the mind to unpleasantness, that keeps us imprisoned in a pattern of dislike, in a pattern of contraction. Okay, so how to come out of this? How to, I'm not sure of the right word, contravene these strategies of closing off? It's really simple. And the practice affords us many opportunities to work with it. Painful feelings arise in the body Instead of pushing them away, instead of the aversion, practice actually relaxing into them. It's just the opposite of our normal conditioning. There's a pain that we feel in the knee, in the back. Can you soften, can you relax right into the pain, allowing yourself to feel it? Just to feel it, not so it should go away, but in order to understand. the whole mode of practice is softening, is relaxing. You can use the Vipassana mantra, it's okay, it's okay, let me feel it. It's okay, it's okay. And what happens is that the boundaries of what we're willing to be with get greatly expanded. When I first began sitting, was quite some time ago, I couldn't sit for 10 minutes cross-legged. The pain was so excruciating. That's why I have tremendous respect for you. <laughs> I really do. You know, when you're sitting here and you're really sitting. I, co- I couldn't do it. It was just too much. I couldn't bear the pain. So I would move or I'd sit in the chair or whatever. I'd... Slowly what happens, and I saw this happen over time, we learn how to be wi- First, the pain does lessen over time. But more importantly, our minds get stronger. The capacity of our mind to hold unpleasant feeling, to hold unpleasant sensation, increases. And we begin to lead much less fearful lives. And perhaps one or more of you are thinking at this point well, why do this? Why should I soften into pain? You know, why should I relax into it? There's one very good reason. Because at some point in our lives, pain is inevitable. Given the nature of this mind and body, we will face it sometime where we can't just move away from it. So then how is our mind going to be with it? Will we have learned? to be soft, to be allowing, to be okay? Or will we be caught in fear, in anxiety, in tightness, in contraction? So the practice is tremendously helpful training. And we see that how we relate to painful feelings in the body reveals to us how we relate to other difficult situations in our lives because the patterns are the same. How we relate to the body can show us how we relate to our lives. Okay, so first we collect the attention, with the breath, with the walking primary object. Begin to get a little steady, a little calm. Then we become aware of everything that the body reveals. We learn how to work skillfully, both with the pleasant and the unpleasant. So these two steps are quite tangible. What happens next is that we begin from the steadiness of awareness, we begin to connect with the inner experience of our minds. When we use mind in the Buddhist sense, bear in mind that it does not mean intellect or is not limited to intellect. Mind, think of it as big mind. It includes everything. It's consciousness, awareness, intuition, emotion, thought, silence. So when we say understand the experience of the mind, it's really this whole great cosmos of consciousness. As we learn to pay attention, we begin to see the deeply conditioned patterns, the tendencies that we have strengthened in our lives, in our minds. Likes, dislikes, judgments, clinging, condemning. We see all the good qualities and all the unwholesome ones. There's a line in Zorba the Greek by Kazantzakis where it says, self-knowledge is always bad news. (laughs) (laughs) And you may have gotten a glimpse of that. (laughs) But it's definitely true. Because when we just sit and really take an honest look at what's in there, there are a lot of nice things. But we also see all the other stuff. And we learn. We just learn about our relationship to different of these patterns. A common one, very common one, which unnoticed can cause us a lot of grief and trouble, is the judging mind. It's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing how strongly conditioned that is. On one retreat, I was sitting in the dining room. I was on retreat myself. And I was kind of pretending to be mindful, (laughs) but really watching everybody that came in. What was so amazing is my mind had a judgment about every single person. (laughs) It it was really ridiculous. They walked too fast. They walked too slow. They took too much food. They didn't take enough food. I didn't like what they were wearing, (laughs) and the mind just kept churning out. Fortunately, and this one learns in practice, the freedom in that is learning neither to buy into it nor to be condemning, which is a common pattern. Oh, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be doing that. I shouldn't be feeling that, which is, of course, just another judgment. We need to stay light, light-hearted behind it all. Just, on this, just this last year, a few months ago, I was sitting on retreat when Upandita was here. And it's all, when he's here, it's, he's a very demanding teacher and it's all very disciplined and quiet. And, and there were a few nuns here, Buddhist nuns. And when they were ordained sangha, usually the, the custom here is that they take their food first and everybody waits online until they go through the line for food. Well, this one nun, so we were all waiting online. I was up close to the front. <laughs> and this one nun was going through the line, and I just saw her loading a plate full of food. So my mind had this whole judgment, well, what is? This is not proper for a nun. <laughs> and not only not <laughs> that, I mean, she was taking a long time. You know, because she was really loading it on and taking two plates, and, and so my mind was just going on and on and on. And then as she goes through the line, finally, you know, she gets through, and I see that she goes over and she, she has a plate of food she had gotten. She was serving a blind person who was here, who had been sitting at a table, you know, and so she was taking this food for this person. So then, of course. So <laughs> <laughs> But what I appreciated about the whole situation, and it's really the fruit of the practice, is that just going through that whole little drama, you know, all the sides of it, the fruit of the practice is that there can be enough space to see it and to really smile. Just a, it's just the mind doing its thing. It's just a pattern. You know, I didn't invite those thoughts, but they came. They were there. It doesn't matter. If we're aware, if we're aware enough to make some space, not to get totally caught, even if it's a moment or two afterwards, then these patterns don't matter. We don't have to get rid of them. We just have to not be so identified with them. So that's a big difference. So watch, watch the judging mind or whatever your particular pattern might be. Another common one is just getting lost in pleasant fantasies. You know, it's easy to come in here and sit and just, hmm. (laughs) You know, just spend uh, 45 minutes or uh, an hour, just lost in a kind of nice reverie of whatever kind. Oh, that sitting was good, it went really fast. (laughs) That's another way that we relate to what's happening in our minds, but it's not with awareness. It's not with wakefulness. Watch to see, and this is also revealed, watch to see the relationship we have to difficult emotions. And here, having worked with painful sensations in the body can be a great help because it's directly analogous to how we can work with difficult emotions. We all have, or each of us has, different kinds of emotion that we feel uncomfortable with, that we don't like to be with, we don't like to accept. We talked a little bit about this this afternoon. It could be anger, it could be shame, it could be unworthiness, it could be grief, it could be any one of a number of things. Are we closed off to it? Are we defended against it, or can we open? Just give you an example, and this is one of thousands of examples, of the problem that comes when we are not aware, when we're not open to what we're actually feeling. Just a few months ago, I was going out to New Mexico uh, to teach. I was on the plane at Newark Airport and was going through Denver. It was, it was also a very hot day. The plane is loaded, know, it's packed. We taxi out to the runway, and we sit, and we sit, and we sit, and finally the pilot comes on and says, I'm sorry, we can't take off because there are heavy winds in Denver and the plane is too heavy. And for some reason, because of the altitude there and the, the winds, it wasn't safe to land. So we taxi back and we sit again, and they have half of the plane, D plane, you know, and their luggage goes off. Well, this one guy on the plane, he was furious. He, he had been sitting in the back. He came up to the front and he was screaming at these flight attendants. And I was sitting, I was sitting right there. <laughs> it was amazing. It was just amazing to see basically a mind out of control. And what was it? I mean, from a, from a meditative perspective, it became very interesting just to see okay, well, what's going on here? Clearly, it was an unpleasant situation. It was unpleasant physically and all the different arrangements that had to be made. For this guy, he did not have the capacity to feel that unpleasantness. It wasn't okay. That feeling was not okay. The discomfort, the inconvenience, the irritation. Because it wasn't okay, because he couldn't allow himself simply to feel it, it spilled out, it vented out in this very verbally violent way. It was such a lesson. We may or may not be driven to those extremes, but we all do that to a greater or lesser extent. We often lead defensive lives or aggressive lives around emotions that we don't want to feel, emotions that are uncomfortable. The great lesson in meditation just as with the physical pain, it's okay to feel it, whatever it is. We decondition our contracted response. It's okay. The mind is irritated, it's angry, it's annoyed, it's fearful, it's whatever, it's okay, it's okay. And we see that the emotion itself arises and is there, and we feel it, and it goes away. What we're talking about is freedom, how to free the mind from the contraction of identification with each of these experiences that arise. All of this that I've been talking about really can be summed up it's really about greater and greater self-acceptance you know where we open to all the parts of ourselves even to the fact that self-knowledge is always bad news (laughs) we just open to it, we welcome it we delight in it, we look at it, we see it We come to a place of genuine self-acceptance for all of the different parts. You know, we see that we're a package of qualities, each one of us, and we can relax behind it all. And when we allow, when we create this spaciousness, then we're not so driven to act by the force either of denial or of addiction. We just see it, we allow it, we make space. We rest in the awareness. We rest in this very natural awareness, this open sky of the mind. Watching the show, watching, feeling this display No, the the weekend is short, so I'd like to get everything in, but it's impossible, of course. As we develop this greater self-acceptance, begin to feel a real inner freedom and inner ease We develop a certain sense of humor about ourselves, and this is really essential. You know, we so often we're just so caught in the melodrama of our lives, and we lose the humor of it all. As we develop this sense of humor about ourselves to some degree, we also develop a sense of lightness and compassion for others which brings us back right to the beginning, we are not practicing just for ourselves. We're really practicing for the benefit of all, for the happiness of all, so we can relate to all beings from a real feeling of love and compassion. i just like to end with a quotation from Thoreau. His meditation center, of course, was Walden Pond. But basically, he was doing the same thing. He said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and to see if I could learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. That's really what we're doing here, to confront face-to-face the essential fact of our life, of our existence. What is this? What is our experience? What is the nature of the mind, of the body? What is the suffering? Where is the freedom? To front only the essential facts of life and to see if I could learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived." This is the great gift of awareness, the great gift of the practice. Let's sit for a few minutes.